So what tips would you give to people listening on how to break up with their doctor? I would say before you break up, first address the issue. That's very important. You know, calm, practice ahead of time if you need to, write it down. When you're not, you know, try not to be upset, get a little bit of distance between it. But if you notice a discrepancy, you're feeling disrespected, you're feeling not heard, you're feeling um, bypassed or belittled, address that. Write it at hand, you know. I often like the words I statements because instead of you, 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 I am feeling not heard about this. I would like more time about it. So if you begin to talk about those things and you still get no answer, you still get dismissed, you can always go to the next step, which is usually an office manager or a medical director and see one, address the issue there or find a second opinion, you know, go to another physician there. And if that doesn't work, you can still go up the line. You, you, know, you can go make a complaint to a medical board or, you know, a Google review out there. So there's things that you can do. Uh, but then also a simple thing is asking for a second opinion is very common in the industry. It's all in your head. You don't look sick. Your tests are normal. It's probably anxiety. There's nothing wrong with you. Have you heard these words from physicians, family, and friends? If you're someone who has been struggling and swirling through the revolving door of healthcare to find answers about your health, or if you know someone who is going through this experience, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast with Laura Nozika, a show dedicated to exploring the challenges of living with undiagnosed or rare medical conditions. This podcast explores both sides of the bedside, we will be speaking with patients who have had challenges with finding a diagnosis, along with experts in the field. I'm your host, Laura Nozika. Please note, I am not a medical professional, nor am I affiliated with any healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device company. I am an entrepreneur, and I am an independent market researcher focused on helping healthcare organizations better understand the patient perspective. The podcast is not meant to offer medical advice but to merely share the stories and perspectives of podcast guests. You know, calm, practice ahead of time if you need to, write it down. When you're not, you know, try not to be upset, get a little bit of distance between it. But if you notice a discrepancy, you're feeling disrespected, you're feeling not heard, you're feeling um, bypassed or belittled, address that right at the hand. You know, I often like the words I statements because instead of you, 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 I am feeling not heard about this. I would like more time about it. So if you begin to talk about those things and you still get no answer, you still get dismissed, you can always go to the next step, which is usually an office manager or a medical director and see one, address the issue there or find a second opinion, you know, go to another physician there. And if that doesn't work, you can still go up the line. You, you, know, you can go make a complaint to a medical board or, you know, a Google review out there. So there's things that you can do. Uh, but then also a simple thing is asking for a second opinion is very common in the industry. It's all in your head. You don't look sick. Your tests are normal. It's probably anxiety. There's nothing wrong with you. Have you heard these words from physicians, family, and friends? If you're someone who has been struggling and swirling through the revolving door of healthcare to find answers about your health, or if you know someone who is going through this experience, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast with Laura Nozika, a show dedicated to exploring the challenges of living with undiagnosed or rare medical conditions. This podcast explores both sides of the bedside, we will be speaking with patients who have had challenges with finding a diagnosis, along with experts in the field. I'm your host, Laura Nozika. Please note, I am not a medical professional, nor am I affiliated with any healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device company. I am an entrepreneur, and I am an independent market researcher focused on helping healthcare organizations better understand the patient perspective. The podcast is not meant to offer medical advice but to merely share the stories and perspectives of podcast guests. Hello, and welcome to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. I'm your host, Laura Noziga, and I am here today with Amanda Che. It has such a nice little rhyme to it. Today with Amanda Che. That's a whole other podcast, isn't it? That's right. Let me tell you a little bit about Amanda. She is an author, entrepreneur, and lifelong health nut who has helped countless businesses and individuals put their health first. 
Amanda's own battle with lupus, which often drives her bonkers, has fueled her for helping women with lupus. With a master's degree in counseling and as an owner of a stress reduction and mindfulness training company, Amanda brings a wealth of experience to her work. When she's not planning her next travel adventure with her daughters and husband, she's drinking jasmine tea, walking her sweet dog, and giving book suggestions to anyone willing to listen. I think we are more than willing to listen today, Amanda. So thank you so much for being here. And uh, I have to point out the obvious, which I think it's obvious to me. We're both wearing purple. And I think that's because we know that purple is the color that represents folks with lupus. Is that right? That's right. And a butterfly. And the butterfly. That's right. That's right. The final symbol of the, the rash that you often get with lupus. Mm-hmm. And I've got my uh, purple hydrangeas behind us yeah. and uh, behind me. And I'm enough of a nerd to where I have a purple straw in my water today. So I'm a dork. But, dedicated. Uh, you are dedicated. <laughs> I, love I, I love it. Well, thanks so much for being here and your lovely, uh, your lovely background there. You have a yeah. lot of fun things going on back there. So lots of good books. It, there are a lot of good books. So what's what's a good one that you're you're reading? And uh, you know, we'll talk about one we should be reading uh, that you wrote down the road in our conversation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh, a great one I read. I think it's probably behind me over here. It's a North Carolina author. Her name has eluded me, of course, right? But the book is called A Woman is No Man. Mm, interesting. But it's excellent. About a woman in Palestine and how she moves to the U.S. And even though she's now American citizen, how her the values held in the Palestinian community still continue into the U.S. And when she has daughters, how that affects them. Mm-hmm. Well, you are a, a champion of women because I think I read on your website that you were kind of a... a a champion or maybe even a rebel, we might say, even in, in high school, there was something that you were lobbying for in high school. Did I read that on the oh, yeah. website? <laughs> I forgot. I put the yes. Lobby. Yeah, I think it was for when um, girls had to wear one particular set of clothes, gym, but the, the boys got to wear a different set. And so I was not down for that. Mm-hmm. Here you're still championing the cause. So, so Amanda, why don't you kick us off with what that's been like for you and where it all started. Sure. I think it all started when my first daughter, whose name is Anna, was born. Well, when I was pregnant with her, I should say, was very, very sick woman. Uh, didn't really know why. Seven hospitalizations and multiple feeding tubes. And I think like five drug allergies came out of it. So the goal was just to get me to stay alive and eventually to get this daughter to be born. Um, and then I had another daughter without big troubles, but probably when, I don't even remember exactly, I think probably when Anna was about five or six, I, I only remember this because I went to the dentist and said, I have all these sores in my mouth. And she was like, that's no big deal. And I thought, no, oh. okay, she was, maybe it's stress. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but it was really hard on my body. I've done lots of sports and Mixed martial arts and CrossFit, of course, right? You know, I did all these things. And when a few years later, my joints started to hurt, I just said, hi, I, you know, I've been so tough on them. I didn't think anything of it. Um, I had some like low vitamin D levels when I lived in Florida, which was weird. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, people like these doctors are like, that's no big deal. When I moved to North Carolina 11 years ago, then I had like white blood cell counts were low and some platelets were low and calcium was low and vitamin D were low. And they were just like, you must be fighting an infection. And I still had these mouth sores and I still had um, pain in my knees and my hips. And it hurt so bad. I went to a doctor who did one of these like, oh, you're getting older. Uh You're just fine. And I'm like, he runs some blood. And then I ended up having Sjogren's disease. So if you haven't heard of that, that's an autoimmune that attacks usually moisture producing. So the eyes and the mouth are typical and explains some joint pain. But then I kept feeling worse. I kept, um, I went to a rheumatologist who would kind of watch over and she would ask me these questions, really particular questions. And I didn't know what was going on with those, uh, kind of leading me to the fact. But eventually when COVID hit and I got 
I felt really crappy to say the least in my hair. My hair started to fall out. Very serious then <laughs> for me, right? Yeah. Little vanity kicked in and eventually I was diagnosed with lupus. So I probably had lupus. Who knows? I mean, maybe it was most likely triggered when my daughter was born and it slowly just crept its way into my life and showed in little areas. But when not looked at a full picture, we could not understand what was going on with me. They just kind of were like, oh, you know, you're fine. Move on, move on. And how did you get to that rheumatologist? I've been through five rheumatologists so far. My current one, she's lovely. Uh, but the one I had basically said, we tried a drug with me and it didn't do well in my kidneys. And she's like, I don't know exactly what to do. I'm going to send you, since I'm in um, Raleigh, North Carolina, we have Duke and UNC, which is great, really great medical systems for us, certainly on the research end. So she tried to send me to both of those. And there was like a six month wait. So I found on my own someone who was available a few months away. And I learned um, she's now been removed from her role because she, she was not serving as a very good rheumatologist. Oh. Uh, and so I just ended up waiting eight months to get into this very specific lupix clinic. Um, and my physician is her name is Syra Shake, and she does an amazing job at treating people with lupus. And she's only in the, in the office seeing patients once a week, but the rest of the time she runs clinical research, which for me is a really big thing because I want to know what's out there. And I want to be a participant in any of these clinical trials to help people understand lupus better. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the uh, trial because years ago, my past life, before I uh, started doing what I do for a living, which is market research, uh, in the healthcare setting, I actually worked for an agency that specialized in patient recruitment for clinical trials. And I worked on a lupus study. It was called the TULIP study, and it was for uh, lupus um, SLE and then also for nephritis. And is what I under, from what I understand, it was finally approved last year, this medication. Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah there. We are far behind when it comes to lupus, although recently research has been gaining some ground. So there, you know, with their, there's some new things coming out, like the CAR T, uh -huh. you may have heard, yeah, stem cell kind of idea, or is it T, T cells, I guess we call it. And that's promising. Uh, we still have a long ways to go. There's only three FDA approved medications for lupus, if you can uh -huh. believe it. Uh huh. Well, one, uh, the one I worked on was anaphrolamab. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, so that was exciting, but it just goes to show you how long it takes for drugs to be in development because this was over seven years ago that I had left that that agency and the the trial was still was still going forward so have you have you participated in a trial? Do you have that experience? Yes, yes, I have been in four clinical trials to date, and I started trials actually when I was ten years old um kind of got in there with a family but i've um surprisingly done one on mindfulness, which turned into, I did it when I moved here, you know, 11 years ago, and I knew nothing about mindfulness. And I thought, I'm going to do this trial at Duke. So that's what I did. I've done a, uh, a brain stimulation, transcranial stimulation trial for lupus. That's the first trial ever done out of UNC. And then I did one down in Florida on um, different diet plans when it comes to lupus. I'm a big advocate for clinical trials. You know, I'm not we're not doing something crazy. We're not getting some experimental uh, vaccine. I, I think I, I try to be very conscious of that. But I, I just understand, one, that I have a role to play in advocating for lupus. And, and two, you know, at the same time, I can benefit for getting access to these new treatments as well. Mm -hmm. Patients certainly are, are nervous or apprehensive sometimes about participating in trials, particularly those that are based around uh, a, a drug. How do you, yes. how would you suggest someone getting comfortable with the idea of a, of a trial and potentially considering participating? Hmm. The first thing I would say is I haven't mentioned it yet, but my 23 year old daughter, that one that caused me so much trouble during pregnancy, she also has lupus. And oh. so she said to me today, oh, 
um, I'm going to go get some vitamins because I think these vitamins are going to do such a better job than medicine. And I was like, hold up. Um, first of all, have you read your mother's book? She hadn't. And, and the <laughs> book, I made a whole point of saying how supplements aren't reg regulated by the FDA. They may have too much or not enough. They may have another set of ingredients there that aren't approved. And this can definitely do damage on your body. But the medication that you take has gone through so many different rounds of clinical trials to get where it's at now. It's been vetted. It's been experimented. We know the side effects or the potential side effects. Um, and so that's something that I keep in mind. Certainly when it comes to clinical trial, there, you know, there's not a trial for, hey, try this supplement that you may have got on Amazon and who knows where it's made. It's definitely something that is there to help. So I would tell someone who is interested in a clinical trial, uh, one, the challenge being sometimes finding it. And if your rheumatologist said, this is, you know, a good option. That would be for me, if you trust your physician, if you don't find another one, but if you trust your physician, lean into that, look into what the website, the research is out there. I mean, as you may know, on clinical trials, they are very, very thorough. They have to be when they discuss what's going on. They have very strict parameters, government regulations, and that doesn't always happen in a lot of other cases of things you have access to. So I would just say, Arm yourself with the knowledge out there. Trust your rheumatologist. And if you don't have access like that, I often just go online and search out. That's why I found two of my four. I just was like, mm. lupus clinical trial. Okay, let's go. Yeah, and, and there's so many ways to get involved in in research. And and again, let me just say, I, I work for myself. I'm a freelance uh, market researcher, moderator in the healthcare space. but through my journey in the last seven years with talking with doctors and patients and learning more about how patients can get involved in research, market research certainly is another aspect and how patients can get involved. It's not clinical trials, but it's having a conversation that might be sponsored on behalf of a pharmaceutical company, let's say, or some healthcare related company who wants to understand what is this patient journey all about. So there are places where people can fill out a questionnaire and talk a little bit about their their condition, et cetera, and get in a database and potentially get called for an interview or some type of conversation and actually get um get paid for it. Make a make it yeah. and that's paid free, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's some observational studies where they're you're answering questions, you know, a clinical trial that's observational, they're looking at past, your past history. Maybe you have to give some um, medical records and things like that, and you don't have to go in. You don't have to participate any other way. I think we think of clinical trials just like, you know, oh, I'm going to get this injection or someone's going to shock me or something bad's going to happen, and that's not always the case. Because in the end, you have the choice to participate, but you also have the choice to be like, hold up, this isn't right for me. I want to stop it or end it. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And um, you you have been talking about your rheumatologist and you said that you're mm -hmm. on, your, on your fifth one. So for mm -hmm. you, what's important for you in a, in a physician, rheumatologist? Um, but what, first of all, what do you expect the rheumatologist's role to be? And what do you look for in a doctor? What's important for you? Good question. I like to think of my relationship with my rheumatologist kind of like my marriage, like a, a relationship of a marriage, meaning there is mutual respect. There is mutual give and take. I am the expert on me. I know what's going on. Even if my labs say I look okay, but I feel like I, I'm not, that's something to bring up. The rheumatologist is the expert on lupus. There's so much I don't know out there. And so we really weave between me knowing and Amaya, it's a woman, on her knowing to come together to find the best solution for me based on what it is. It's also not a dictatorship where she says, take this medicine, and I say, yes, ma'am, and I go on my way. What she says is, hey, there's option one and two and maybe three. I want you to go back and do your, you know, your due diligence, like they would say on, in, in law or real estate, and come back to me. And so I, I do that, and I'm like, okay. I look through the ones and I say, I want this or that. But I also ask a lot of questions in the in-between and 
we always have to have a base of honesty. That is really important. If I'm not taking my medicine, I should tell her. And if I'm not doing something right or something doesn't look right, I trust on her end that she's going to tell me as well. Uh, similar to a marriage, I am committed to stay in that marriage, that relationship with my doctor, as long as I know she is there for me. There's going to be times where she doesn't answer a message that I want, um, but I'm pretty sure she reads the messages and says like, okay, this isn't urgent. I need to go on to my other urgent cases. That's okay. And, you know, I know that the commitment is there. I know that her, I mean, I get a bonus because she's the most empathic physician. I can't expect that for everyone. And she's ruined it for all the rest, but that is just a bonus side of that. So as long as we have this clear communication, this mutual respect and honesty, that's what is essential to me. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to settle if that's not what you have now. What's an example of how this physician has demonstrated empathy? Mm -mm. She usually leads every single interaction, visitation with us. What do you want to talk about today? It's never like she's coming in with her own agenda. She wants to know what's important to me. So maybe my kidney levels look terrible, but I want to come back and, and talk about I don't know, something about a knee pain or something like that. She lets me lead the conversation. And in my very first meeting with her, she had said it was during COVID, right? And she had said, um, how was her wording? Like, knowing what's going on with COVID, how has your mental health been across this period? And I remember I didn't cry, but I was like, fine, <laughs> fine. Um, because one, no physician, no physician has ever asked me about my mental health. And lupus definitely affects your brain. You know, you have brain fog, you have something called neuropsychic um, lupus, uh, NPSLE. And these things can come into play. But the fact that she actually asked the thing that maybe doctors don't often ask because they don't want to hear the answer or they don't know how to deal with the answer. Mm. She addressed it right away. And there were some, you know, mad props for that. And even when people ask us just in general, how are you doing? I mean, for me, it just brings down the waterworks that, oh, yeah, yeah, that that somebody actually cares about how I am or how I'm feeling. And and if you haven't had a chance to to kind of purge and get it out, it's mm. very, it's very emotional. And, and you're right. I think oh, a lot of doctors yeah. don't know how to handle that kind of response. No. Not at all. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a delicate touch is needed there. But there's also you have to have as a physician, you have to have the resources to give them if they're not doing well. So given that you you've moved on through, you said five different rheumatologists and, and I hear this from, of course, other folks, too, people I interview for work, people I've interviewed on the podcast. And there's different circumstances as to why people decide to move on to another provider, another healthcare professional. What were some of the reasons that you decided, well, this one's not for me, I'm, I'm moving on? And how, how did you know that it was time to move on? Kind of like you said, it's a marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah why did, you know why did we break up? Exactly, exactly. It was a breakup. Well, uh, the first... One was, I remember my very first visit asking about nutrition uh, because health has really been, maintaining my health has really been the base of my life. And I was asking about nutrition and food and she was like, oh, no, no, that doesn't play any role. I had Sjogren's and this doesn't play any role in your Sjogren's. And I thought, oh, we're missing out on something here. Yeah. So I, I'd gone through a few rounds and got out of there. Um, some... Uh, have left the practice. Two practices, if you can believe it, has have completely shut down the rheumatology departments, which is interesting. Uh, one that one physician said she's like, you're outside of the scope of what I can do. I'm gonna send you on. Um, and then the last one before my current one, oh, oh, um, she did not respond to any messages ever, despite phone calls and text or not text, you know, portal messages. And some got more, you know, urgent. I, I felt terrible. And I would get like an on-call person who's like, I'm an ortho. I don't know what to do with you. Uh, and I, I had addressed it. So I don't like to break up without giving some warning. So I had spoken to her and been like, it's really important that I get a response from you in an appropriate time frame when I message you. And she's like, what? You know, this, this nurse must not be getting me my messages. Here, here's my email. You email me directly. Still no response. So. I learned it's time to move on. 
Yeah. So what tips would you give to people listening on how to break up with their doctor? I would say before you break up, first, address the issue. That's very important. You know, calm, practice ahead of time if you need to. Write it down. When you're not, you know, try not to be upset. Get a little bit of distance between it. But if you notice a discrepancy, you're feeling disrespected, you're feeling not heard, you're feeling um, bypassed or belittled, address that. Right at the hand, you know, I often like the words I statements because instead of you, 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 I am feeling not heard about this. I would like more time about it. So if you begin to talk about those things and you still get no answer, you still get dismissed, you can always go to the next step, which is usually an office manager or a medical director and see one, address the issue there or find a second opinion, you know, go to another physician there. And if that doesn't work, you can still go up the line. You, know, you can make it a complaint to a medical board or, you know, a Google review out there. So there's things that you can do. Uh, but then also a simple thing is asking for a second opinion is very common in the industry. Uh, can you send me a referral to Dr. Smith? You don't have to say anything else. You don't have to explain why. You don't. You have the right to, to do that. And your the answer should be, okay, that simple. Y- yes, because I've, I've heard people say, uh, about second opinions in general, regardless of what condition it is, they like people feel funny and like they're cheating on their yeah. on their doctor. Yeah, it's very it's very common. Certainly in, in in these conditions, it doesn't. Your doctor can still be awesome, and you still can want a second opinion. It's okay, and doesn't mean you're t- necessarily breaking up, but you're just checking out another checking out another type of car, kicking the tires around. <laughs> there you go. I, I like the way that yeah. works. Um, yeah, swipe. Right, swipe left, whatever they, that's right. they're doing yeah. these days. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, those are those, those. That's great perspective because I do. I think people are very apprehensive on on moving on, and and there is a kind of a pain in the backside factor to switching physicians in terms of of transferring records and getting established. And when you're not established, you don't always get in as quick as you might if you is if you've had a relationship with a doctor for a while. So it can, it can be difficult. Um, so there could yeah. be. Oh, absolutely. But how much more difficult is it going to be another five years down the road? And you're still angry at your doctor for not getting what you need. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting, waiting for answers or, or something, yeah. some relief. Yeah. Why do you think it took so long for you to get diagnosed? I think that we were only piecemealing of how I felt and instead of looking at the whole picture of what was going on. And I I am think that if I was not an advocate for me, I still may be way back doing something else, being like, oh, I still feel bad. I don't know what's going on. But in the same regard, I was also my own worst when I first was diagnosed and they tried to give me this medicine. And I'm like, medicine, look at me. I am strong. I don't need this medicine. Um, so I had to eventually, uh, of course, I'm on medicine now and I take it all every day, but it, I needed some time. I wasn't willing to do it yet, but I had, the doctor was actually, she was great. The one that I had back then, she would be like, no problem. Whenever you're ready, we have some options for you. And she just left it at that. And that was so great. There was no pressure. She was open to those things. Are you willing to talk about what your regimen is? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's pretty easy. I take an anti-malaria drug, which is um, kind of the gold hallmark standard for lupus. I take something called Plaquenil. Uh, You probably have heard it called hydroxychloroquine because Trump made it really famous during COVID, making it really hard for people with lupus to take it. So you can take that drug for your whole life. Uh, I take that and then I take a biologic, which is something that I inject into my stomach, which sounds really, you know, badass, but it's, it's just a little bit painful, not too much. It's called Benlista, and I do that every week. And then, you know, of course, I, I'm still low vitamin D, so I take vitamin D and having lupus. As a woman, uh, on average, I every woman with lupus has a heart attack 10 years earlier than a woman without lupus. And if you're a Black woman, it's 20 years earlier. So I take an aspirin every day as well. Oh, wow. I'm pretty, and- I'm pretty easy on the supplement, you know, on, on the supplements, on the prescription end. And because lupus affects mainly women, and based on what you know, how does that affect women in other ways at different stages of life? Sure. 
the most common when women are diagnosed are between the ages of 15 and 45. And that's when we enter our childbearing ages and estrogen uh, goes up. So women at that age, uh, so, it's so hard to talk about what women go through with lupus because it's like a fingerprint. Everyone has their own fingerprint. So everyone has going to have their own representation of symptoms. Uh, the interesting thing is my daughter and I are very similar, but we're not exactly the same. You know, from the top of the head or the hair loss or the brain issues, uh, all the way down to the feet of, you know, joint pains. And yeah. you mentioned lupus nephritis, which affects 50% of the people. And that is a kidney issue that can have permanent organ damage. So it is such a, a wide gamut on how it shows up uh, for women that it's hard to to state for sure. You are very educated on lupus and, and all these different nuances. How How did you get yourself educated yeah. and how would you suggest uh, a woman do more research and what resources are appropriate for her? Thank you. And uh -huh. to begin, I thought I knew, right? I They thought I had lupus for a long time, but we didn't say it for sure. So, you know, you do a Google search and you would kind of be like, okay. Uh, but when I was officially diagnosed, of course, right, you turn to Google and you, you read through some of the things and I'm like, you know, when something's so vague, you don't really, okay. Um, and I got, I have it around here. I, I bought, what's well, right there, the 850 page book called The Lupus Encyclopedia by Dr. Thomas, who mm -hmm. is a lovely rheumatologist. And that was a lot. I read through it, made some highlights and was like, oh, okay, I feel like I know it. But I did it. Only when I decided to write The Girlfriend's Guide to Lupus and I started writing, did I really, really learn. You know, I spent a year writing a book. So it I'm hoping I do know these things now. It's been drilled into me, but it was very eye-opening. You know, I thought I was a great advocate. I thought I knew about lupus and I really didn't know as much as I, I know now. And it was just through the repetition of writing and reading. I, I spent certainly on the first few chapters, which are about, you know, the diagnosis. I would tell my family members like, oh, lupus is sucky. And they're like, I know you keep saying that. And I'd be like, you know, I'd read some more. I'm like, oh, that sucks. It's terrible. This is not a disease we want to have. And they're like, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, so I think those, that helped a lot to draw my knowledge. But everyone learns different ways, right? So I would figure out what's your best way of learning, um, then go after a source of that. It, you can go to a conference. You can speak to someone who has lupus. You can read a book or watch a video or do a podcast. But I would really give caution to where you consume. Mm -hmm. because not all consumption is the same. I, please don't listen to Facebook groups or Reddit for medical advice. Don't share your labs, show a picture of something going on and ask them what they think. I know we want a diagnosis and I know we want some help, but they're just people like me and I don't really know enough to tell you. I can only be um, good on what I do for me, but because that lupus is a thumbprint, it may mean nothing to you. And... You started talking about resources or the credible places to go to for mm -hmm. for information. What what type of either whether it's organizations or yeah. other types of literature, where where would you direct people on what you think is credible? There are a few nonprofits for lupus out there, like uh, Lupus Research Alliance, uh, Lupus Foundation of America, Kaleidoscope Fighting Lupus, uh, Lupus LA, and these people typically have scientists on their, you know, in their organization that are going to look through the data that's coming out on clinical trials and give that into bite-sized chunks that it's easier to digest. So that's what I would say. But even I learned when I read a clinical trial that may say, let's just say, for example, this isn't true, but let's say um, lupus does best if you eat four red Skittles a day. Here's a clinical trial that says that you should do that. But I learned, let me read through that clinical trial. They gave men who live in Turkey who don't have lupus, you know, four Skittles, and that's how they look better, right? You have to really read through the clinical trial to understand that doesn't, that can't pertain to me, or that's such a low number. That's not really going to be something that's mm. measurable or applicable. So I, I learned to be very skeptical of what's out there and not just accept. You know, the news will give you blurbs of things, but only when you really dive deep do you think like, well, that doesn't pertain to me. It's kind of the scare tactics that media uses at times to attract you. And we women 
being the sole consumers, right? We buy 85% of the stuff. They often target us in our kind of our insecurities, our um, scarcities to attract us to listen to them. And so I, and now I'm, I'm become very aware of that. Mm-hmm. So the credible resources for clinical trials would be where, in your opinion? Um, I think if you go all to those non- nonprofits, you can find information on everything that's coming out. And usually they'll they'll give their own synopsis and then they'll link to the clinical trial at publishing, you know, the abstract. And I will click on that and I will read that. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, be a, a good advocate before you go to every doctor's appointment. I have a list right now of I go see next week and I, I write down the things that I have learned about and then I bring that up to my physician. And often she'll give me like, I'm like, oh, I read this about probiotics in your stomach. And she's like, okay, here's what the deal is. And she'll explain it to me. Not all rheumatologists are up on their data, but I happen to have one that is, you know, out there actively uh, in the clinical trial field. So she has awareness to those. But that's something that your rheumatologist, if they're not aware of, you can bring it to their attention and see what their feedback is. Uh-huh. Yeah, a, a lot of times the the physicians that I've interviewed again again for work purposes that they'll they'll even say that they they learn from the patients what's going on yeah. out there because they just can't possibly have all the time to to keep up on on everything that's going on, especially depending on their on their specialties. But certainly, clinicaltrials.gov is is a good place to go in terms mm-hmm. of finding out what's what's going on and. I will admit I've read a few clinical trials protocols in my time, and uh, they can be very cumbersome to get through. So it's certainly important mm-hmm. to to talk to a physician who can get you through the lingo and all the terminology, and yes. help help make a decision. Yeah, and help mm-hmm. make a decision if if that's what works for you. If we shift off from talking about kind of the heavy medical stuff here. Um, you mentioned mindfulness and some of the other things you're doing, which is maybe more whatever you want to refer to it as more complementary or more functional medicine kind of things or, you know, alternative med, however you'd like to term that. It's up, up to you. But tell me about some of the things that are out there or maybe have been helpful for you on that front. And since you have a training coaching business, it would be great to hear what what you're doing, not only for yourself, but uh, maybe for people who could benefit from that. Well, the first thing is that I learned that my health is way more than just my physical body. And that really helped me to understand that there's other parts that that I need to nurture or be aware of. Like, you know, you have a spiritual side, you have emotional side, you have a social side. So if you, if we think of a, a triangle, and the base of it is your health, the things that you think of, right? How I move, what I eat and do those things. And then as, as they go up, um, it helps you to remember that it's not just that. There's a lot more and that, that helps me keep balance. But with the base being such a, a strong one there that I do things that you probably think of that are um, not sexy. Uh, nothing's Instagrammable about it. And they involve like walking. Like I said, I walk my dog. Mm-hmm. Twice a day, I, maybe I get in you know, between three to five miles just walking the dog. It's good for me. I usually don't have headphones on or phone, and I just look around and look upside outside and try to be present. Uh, I also know that for mindfulness, it really helps. I teach yoga, which is a nice compliment, but I teach it. I'm not taking it. I often teach it. So when someone on the road looks outside so I can see uh, trees in a road right there and someone about cuts me off on the the road or something happens I have learned through teaching so much just to do this like to be aware of my breath when, when I feel myself hyped up or I feel some nervousness coming on my breath is always there and so I know that many people there's there's guilt around not being mindful or not practicing mindfulness. I didn't sit still this morning and close my eyes and ohm and levitate. Or to me, that's not the only way it has to be. Health is what you define it as and what's good for you. And it looks a lot of different ways. So if you want to call it breath work, call it breath work. If you say, I'm just going to breathe in and out for a few minutes or even a minute or even one time a day, you do get benefits. I mean, the more you do them, of course, the more you get. But mindfulness is really big there. Other parts that are really important to me. Uh, so that ties into stress management, right? You know, not all stress is bad. 
think of how you, if you ever had a puppy, if you ever moved, ever had a new job, ever grew a baby or been in a relationship, these are all things that are stressful, but they often turn into something good in the end. And so we forget that stress can be coming to us for a reason. It gives us that motivation, that little bit of a push to go forward and to take some action. But we usually think of it as like this big, bad disease killer and get the hell away from it. But it's quite uh, different when it comes to short-term stress. And so that's another thing, how you tie it in. You want to be away from the chronic stress that is always there. And certainly when you have an autoimmune disease, you know inflammation. So you need to be conscious of it and try to to tap it back. But just to understand that stress is not always a bad and sometimes there to be a friend to help you move along. And so with all of that, you had mentioned your book, The Girlfriend's Guide to Lupus. What got you writing? Because certainly writing a, a book is is not an easy task. I've listened to stories along the way from a few friends who have written books, and I've had folks on my podcast who are authors. And oh, it is not yeah. an easy process. I guess if it were, as they say, everyone would be doing it. But what got you thinking mm-hmm. about writing a, a book? And and you did it. Congratulations. First, first Thank of you. all. I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My, everyone in my family was like, I will never write a book after watching you. That's <laughs> uh, about stressful. In like a cave. Yeah, like in a cave for a year. It's hard to write a book when you have a chronic disease as well. Oh, oh you, you know, you're crying, typing. <laughs> um, why I wrote it. I guess I I knew that there was something out there for me. And I'm not joking when I say I remember where I was walking my dog when I just had this like, you know, like, oh, I must write this book. Yeah, I just write a book for women. And that title instantly came to me. And the reason was when I was diagnosed, I did read that 850 page book. And it was good. It was thorough, but it didn't really tell me the things, um, the real things I needed to know. Like, okay, what do you do about your hair falling out? And sex is going to change why and how and things like it. you're more f- likely to have UTIs and what do you do when you know depression and anxiety become such um, common when people with lupus so all these big things were out there that were scary and these aren't things you sit down and talk to your rheumatologist with because there's so many of them right you would be you need you need they didn't have anyone um, and then I also knew that I had my own base of my health that I have worked on i mean i remember being in jazzercise when i was 10 years old just with my like these things i've always done in my life i've experimented with so many different things and if i could tie those two together maybe i could help women who have lupus as well not to feel you know so alone because it's a very scary and lonely diagnosis yeah and and with what you're doing in your coaching training business how's how's that helping people with lupus yeah, I think there are very similar processes and um, ideas, viewpoints that are pulled from one to the other. So on the business end, maybe I'm training a team of individuals to understand some components of it and how to, you know, not always be lost in their own mind or teaching lawyers how, you know, talking about bias, implicit bias at work. But these things really parlay into our own life as well. And certainly when you have lupus, they're all there. And in fact, with lupus, they're probably more there screaming at you that this has to be a priority, that you need to take care of these things. Um, Because in the end, no matter what you have going on, you still have your health and you still have control of it. And we have to remember that or else we are um, victims to a disease of lupus and no one wants that. Mm -hmm. For sure. When, uh, When does the book launch? The book is coming out October of this year. Hey, that's fantastic. Um, and so what big book tours uh, in the future for you? What do you think? Yes, I'm taking the book to Uganda. While I go it. The <laughs> um, no one will know about it, but I will show it to the gorillas. No, I am taking a, a trip. This is, I said this would be my year, right? Mm-hmm. I've had some really crappy years, the last few years of diagnosis and, and things going left and right. Um, and I said this would be my year. So this is the year I wrote the book. And this is the year I've always wanted to go on this vacation to see the gorillas and I'm doing it. So the culmination is I get back and two weeks later, I launch the book. So very exciting. What a great way to just wrap everything up, at least this chapter that's continuing on, obviously. But but this part, yeah. you, you, you've accomplished this huge 
goal. You started it in in a time where I think you said 2020, right? That you were writing. I know. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, I I wrote it um within one year. It took me one year to write it. But literally, I did. I mean, I, I did a few few work things, but almost you know 40 or more hours a week. I was simply writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything went to the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so is that, you know, how would you, how would you, let's see what's my question here. How would you get someone thinking about writing a book and what should they know Mm -hmm. writing a book when, again, I talk a lot about make your mess, your, your message. And so many people that I've interviewed um, for the podcast have, have done just that in the way of books and, coaching people and advocating and they're on the speaker circuit they're doing all these really cool things you know how how do you how would you coach someone to write a book or kind of get their their message out mm-hmm. yeah there is a quote that i read somewhere that said 81 percent of people feel like they want to write a book they've got something in them to write a book um the first i would say for me it served as a great advantage is that i had no idea how to write a book and for once in my life, I did not look outside before I started writing. I didn't read a single book. I didn't ask a single person. Um, and that's not always the case, right? There's book coaches that can help you along the process. I simply sat down and started typing on a Google document. Uh, only when I got mostly done did I look up and say, what, oh, you need an editor next? That's the next step. Um, so it served as a great advantage to me because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know that there was some structure. I have always been, you can see books are all around. I, I love books. I have read books my whole life. Um, so I felt like I had something to give that way. But I would think the reality is to tell people that it takes a lot of dedication, a lot, a lot of perseverance in areas that your family will never understand what you're doing. Your friends won't understand. They Maybe they ask you how the book coming and you say, it's kind of like how your, how's your lupus doing? How's your book doing? Yeah, fine. You know, it don't understand that part. Um, but I think coming back for me was always coming back to the value and the mission was, which was to help women. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that to someone writing a book to really think through who's your end person. You know, do they they want someone sitting on a couch, being you know, ignoring the TV and saying this is the best book ever, and they share with their friends. Do they want someone crying over you know a, a breakup in the book? Like, who do you want your reader to be what do you want them to experience along the way um and then don't think too much you know just start doing it and do what you can do and take breaks when you need to but get back at it when you have it it's kind of like uh with your health if you stop working out suddenly you you know kind of like if you're piping you're piping your house right the plumbing isn't working you want to burn down your whole house so the same with your health. If you stop doing something, we'll get back on it. And the same with the book. If you write and you stop, no problem. But don't give up what you've given to the process already. Get back out there and do some more. That's that's great advice, too, because I think uh, sometimes ignorance is bliss because otherwise when you know too much, it could be highly stifling. And then you just say, yeah. oh, this is this is too hard and and mm-hmm. I, I'm not doing this. And sometimes it's better to not know what you're supposed to know. Like, like, like you said. Very true. Yeah. What a cathartic way to get your journey out and also be helpful all at the same time. And uh, do I understand right? You're speaking as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love to speak. I think speaking. I just spoke um, at Lupus Foundation of America, the North Carolina Summit. And I spoke on how to be your own bestie advocate. Uh, I went out and did that. And, you know, for me, it's just a, a pleasure to to meet these other people. And just if, if I say something that people listen to, I'm like, oh, amazing. You listen to that. Good job. So it, it's a joy. I like to wrap things up with the question, what are the silver linings to mm-hmm. mm, Good. The silver lining to my journey is that I'm a mother of a 23-year-old who has lupus. And since I have lupus, I have an instant lupus best friend, which is means the world to me that I can help her out on days she feels terrible and I can give her some support, not just from a mom, but someone who understands her. And for me, that's really, really a, a silver lining. And she and too, you know, she can, when I'm having days when I feel like no one understands, I call her 
And often when those days I feel really bad, I really, really bad. I shut out those other friends or sometimes even my husband because it's just such a a dark hole you pull yourself into. But I always have, you know, my daughters around that I, I come to and certainly on it when I'm like, feel terrible. And she's like, I get you. And so that's really a silver lining that who would have ever thought that that would be a silver lining, but it definitely is. Hard because um, I, a lot of people will say, uh, well, people look at me and they don't think I'm sick or I don't look sick. I feel awful and they don't understand why I can't go to the party or why I have to lay down for the third time today or all, all those things. How, how, is, how is it that you maybe coped with that and what tips might you have from that standpoint? Mm-mm. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. I have heard many of, but you look just fine. Um, so I, I, I say be a choosy chick what? because who you surround yourself is very important in your support team. And so I have become very, very selective, even on friendships or acquaintances that may turn into friendships. There are plenty of people that I you know, you don't have to say, no, no, we're not going to be friends. But you do say that in your own way. Um, and surprisingly, you know, there have been some big family relationships that are no longer together uh, upon my choice because it wasn't healthy for me and it really hurt my lupus in the end. And so that's what I would say to someone, you know, that you don't have to surround yourself with a whole bunch of people, but the ones who got your back, you need to make sure they have your back. And when you need something, you're going to have to tell them. I mean, there's lots of tips I can give on how, you you know, things you can do. But in the end, you just need to be choosy and who has the awesome job of being on your support team. Mm-hmm. Well, Amanda, you have given us so many great tips and just being very gracious in sharing your journey. And uh, your book is The Girlfriend's Guide to Lupus, which just like you said, it sounds it sounds like a, a warm cup of tea or hot chocolate. Just, just good. So, I love that. Yeah, I, it, that's that's the feeling that I get from it. And uh, when when people are dealing with conditions like this, you you need somebody who who gets it, who understands. So so to have that comfort, if you will, I think is is a fantastic thing that that you're doing and, and what you've done with your journey. And the book can be found on Amazon initially when it launches and then will be available in bookstores. So again, Amanda Che, thank you so much for being with me today. I so appreciate your time and uh, again, all of your sage wisdom uh, and your journey. Thank you. Thank you journey. so much. Yeah, I appreciate your questions and I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Laura. All right. Thanks, everyone. This is another episode of the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. I wish you well and keep searching for those answers. See you soon. Oh, my goodness. That's a wrap on another compelling story. Thanks for listening to the Desperate for a Diagnosis podcast. If you would like more information about today's guests or to find out more about Laura, me, go to DesperateForADiagnosis.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow show updates and healthcare news on the podcast's Facebook page. If you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have any questions, advice, or suggestions for our guests, please email me at lauramarie at DesperateForADiagnosis.com.